Hello. Hey, Chris. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Sorry again. I hate doing that to people. Oh, no, that's okay. You know, things like that happen sometimes. And uh, I appreciate you calling me back or calling me to let me know and uh, sending me an email. So we're totally fine. And I'm glad you were able to join. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. You're more than welcome. So how's it going over there? And are you in Melbourne right now? I am in Melbourne, yes. I've uh, now just had the it's Saturday morning for us, so had the my kids have been you know dropped off to all their different sporting events, and I've got a little two and a half yard running around, so <laughs> lost track of time unfortunately. But uh, no, everything's good. Right. Oh well, no, that's that's totally fine. And uh, like I said, thank you for your your flexibility and your responsiveness in getting this set up. I really appreciate it. It's been it's been a lot of fun this this project that I'm working on trying to get in touch with former NBA players, specifically former Dallas Mavericks. Sure. Yeah. Uh, if you don't mind, I kind of just like to, you know, talk, talk about you and your, and your basketball career. Sure. Of course. Okay, great. So as I was doing some, some research on you and one of the things that I found quite interesting is that you didn't even start playing basketball until uh, you were 17 years old. Yeah, quite late, just before my 18th birthday, I grew up playing tennis. Um, what got you into basketball, you know, at that at that stage of your life? Uh, my younger brother played, um, and he asked me to, to fill in for his local basketball team. He, he told me that there were only, well, they only had four players, and, you know, I, I really didn't even know how many players were in a game of basketball. I'd never watched a game and <laughs> had no idea how to play and, you know, sort of reluctantly agreed to, to go and fill in and did reasonably well in a very low, you know, a men's D-grade match. And uh, there happened to be someone involved in junior basketball watching who invited me come to, to come and try out with one of the local junior, uh, one of the local junior teams affiliated with professional teams. Oh, wow. That's, that's really cool. Um, or were you aware of no. any prominent NBA players at that time? No, had never watched never watched a second of basketball in my life. Um, uh-huh. uh, you, you know, you, you, you clearly know who Michael Jordan is because I think you'd have to be living under a rock, right? Not to, but but I say to people here in Australia that I didn't know who Andrew Gaze was, and he was the most famous or the most prominent Australian basketball player. Um, I had no idea who he was. Um, you know, I was just absorbed in my tennis and and getting and becoming as good as I I could at, uh, in that sport. Right. Yeah, no, I'm familiar with Gaze. I know he he was on the Spurs briefly at the end of his professional career. That's right, yes. Yeah. So, like, like I said, as I was doing some research, I did see that you were part of a, I think you won a, a FIBA, the under-22 or the under-23 tournament? Yeah, we did. That, that was in Melbourne. We, we beat the USA in the quarterfinals, and they had guys playing for them like Andre Miller, Pat Garrity. Um, uh, a couple of the Arizona boys, um, Mike Bibby. I think Miles Simon might have played on the team. Uh, but, but that kind of a crew, you know, Team USA, we, you know, we've yeah. never beaten before. And uh, we got over them. We got over Argentina on the buzzer, uh, you know, Ginobili and, and those guys um, in the semifinal and beat Puerto Rico in the, in the gold medal game. That's really impressive. And you actually just answered 
my question. I was going to ask if there were any um, NBA players that you played against in that tournament. So it sounds like you had some really uh, tough competition. And were there any NBA players on, on your team with you at that time? Or future? Uh, no, not, no, 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 none went on to play. A lot went on to play Olympic Games and represent Australia at senior level. Um, right. Sam, Sam McKinnon may be most notable. You know, Matthew Nielsen has had a, a very good professional career, but mostly in Europe. So, okay. you know, the, the pathway for Australian professional players has been Europe, I suppose, more so than, than the NBA until there was a greater awareness of, of what we were doing here in Australia. Okay. So, um, I guess by the time you're getting ready for the, the 1997 NBA draft... Did you have any expectations as to where you were going to be selected in that draft? Um, well, I, I did, um, but only because the Bulls had given me a guarantee with the final pick of the first round. So I oh, wow. expected to, to go there. Um, yeah, they had told my agent that they would select me with the, I think it was the 30th or the 29th pick back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that was clearly very exciting and clearly... Uh, you know, it surpassed my expectations. You know, at any stage that I'd had leading up to them. You know, I thought that playing in the NBA when I learnt about the sport was a bit of a pipe dream. I, I didn't think I'd be able to improve as quickly as I did, and you know, it took a lot of work, and it happened very, very quickly. So to be thrown into that environment, and you know, a little bit of guilt, I suppose, with someone so new to the sport, feeling like I, I leapfrogged a lot of my good friends who, who were trying who were trying to do the same thing. Um, it was a little bit surreal, um, yeah. and I, and I suppose I got drafted, you know, primarily based on potential. And uh, yeah, we all know that that's a really scary word for for a lot of people. But uh, <laughs> I guess because I was so raw and so new to the game, that you know, that's how Don Nelson. Mind operated. He, he he likes taking chances and he likes finding left of center players. Right. Yeah. No. He's definitely a, a risk taker. But you know, he he's a lot of his picks or a lot of the trades he made in his time with Dallas and uh, have panned out. So yeah, I think he definitely has an eye for international talent. So when you came to Dallas, had you ever been to the United States or Texas prior to that? Uh, I'd been to Texas. We'd we'd played the University of Texas a number of times and we used to travel and play in some of the collegiate uh, pre-season schedules or exhibition game schedules. So we, our professional team that I ended up playing with had relationships with University of Arizona, Texas, you know, we played up in Northern Arizona and, you know, sort of got in or van in uh, November or December each year and and traveled to play some of these colleges. So I had been, I had never been to Dallas. So yeah. it, was, uh, it was brand new for me. What was your impressions of Dallas once you came here and once you started to get settled? Yeah, uh, it was, I guess, coming from Australia where 95% of the population live within 30 minutes of the coast or the ocean. It, it was very landlocked. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, probably I, I was very lucky that I, I had a couple of friends who, who lived in Dallas. Um, and so they were able to take me out, make me feel welcome. And away from basketball, these were, you know, um, a, a very good friend of mine, Craig Carden, was the the professional at the Four Seasons Tennis Resort up at La Costa there. 
so we got to spend a lot of time together and he introduced me to his circle of friends and uh look uh, the, the people I, I think the first thing was just the people were extraordinarily friendly and welcoming and the you know given the fact that you know how much we trained how busy we were the, the food was incredible it's a fantastic city to go out and eat it's a, you know it's a great place to be able to, to have friends visit and enjoy their company over a, a good meal. So it was, uh, I really enjoyed my time there. Right. Do you remember any of your favorite restaurants here? Yeah, uh, the, the, any of the steak restaurants. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I really, I, I really like Nicotina. And, uh, well, I mean, then, yeah, there were a couple of bars, you know, Sambuca bar that we knew the owner of and yeah, they always looked after us, but, you know, even more recently, and, and I'll tell you one thing about the Mavs is that they, they do such a great job of, you know, I was there for a minute and, you know, no one would, would argue that I had an extraordinarily successful time there. I mean, I tried as, as hard as I could and put everything into it, but, you know, they would have no reason to continue to to host me when I came, but they, or to came back to visit, but they've been great. And, and Donnie Nelson has always been fantastic and even... You know, last time I was in town, he took me to the Hard Eight, which is one of the places that he owns down near, near Grapevine Mills. And I love that type of environment to go out and eat in. Um, you know, just really casual Texan barbecue. And, you know, just uh, like I said, I really like the place. So getting back back to your Mavericks tenure, as a rookie, did, did the team or, you know, did any of the veterans on the team do any sort of, you know, the traditional rookie initiation rookie hazing to you do you have any funny stories from your from your rookie season not, in Dallas no, not not really and I think because there had been quite a bit of turnover mm-hmm. and most guys on the team were pretty new to the club that, that, that there wasn't really any of that you know there, there were a couple of times where you know the bag carrying and all that sort of thing which is just part and parcel but uh right uh, yeah, I think there was one time where one of the, the younger guys who'd been in the league was in his second year, you know, and I couldn't tell you who it was. It might have been Khalid Reeves or or someone like that tried to get me to do something. I essentially turned around and said, mate, I've been, I've actually been a professional for four years. Go get it yourself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, just like NBA. So, um, you know, it's amazing how little uh, back then NBA, the NBA knew of, well, the National Basketball League in Australia, and even mm-hmm. on a bigger scale, how little Americans generally knew about Australia as a country. So it was, no, it was interesting. It was certainly foreign for a lot of people. Right. There's one game in particular from your from your rookie season. I wanted to ask you about. It took place on March 12, 1998, against the Chicago the Bulls, Bulls. Yeah, the Bulls game exactly. I, I remember watching that game at my parents' house. I was in fifth grade at the time, and I've been a, a Mavericks fan for over 20 years now. And I know that the Bulls, or it was Michael Jordan's, possibly his last time in Dallas, definitely his last time in Dallas as a Bull, and his last time in Reunion Arena. What was um, that environment like? I know that it was, at the time, the biggest crowd ever at Reunion Arena. And, I mean – were, were you nervous was, going I mean, up against him at that time? I, I, yeah, look, I, you'd be lying if you said you weren't because we, we'd played them in Chicago and I didn't get on the court. So, I'd, you know, I'd never played against Michael Jordan. You know, I'd sat there and watched the game. And like you say, the build-up had been extraordinary. Everybody knew it would be his last time in Dallas, his last time in Reunion Arena. And it was a huge crowd. I mean, I lived in Turtle Creek 
you know, it only took seven or eight minutes to get to Reunion Arena, but this night it took 25, 30 minutes. It was like, it was like the Beatles had come to town. I know that's probably not the most American <laughs> band to pick, but in a, you know, it's, it was just that, you know, the, the city was crazy. Um, you know, I know that I'd had, you know, the, the minute I signed for the, you know, for the Mavs that, you know, my friends back home, none of them cared about coming early. They all wanted to come to the Bulls game and they'd all book tickets. So, you know, I had 15 or 20 family and friends from Australia sitting in the stands also. You know, look, at the time, at the, you know, mum and dad were there. At the time, my brother was, was at the University of North Texas. So he'd driven down the road. To, but there was a group. Now, look, it, it was pretty special. It was, uh, I was a little bit disappointed. It was, uh, I, I got to half time and we were down and I hadn't been on the floor. And, uh, you know, I was having a reasonably good run of form and expected, if not to start, but to get some reasonable minutes. And it began to look like I wasn't going to get on the floor. And, and we were getting you know, beaten quite comfortably. And, uh, you know, it, it was probably a little bit surprised to, to get substituted into the game early in the third quarter. And, look, I suppose my 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 memories of the, the game and that second half in particular sort of centre around, uh, you know, how good Mike Finley or how well Mike Finley played um, mm-hmm. How well Cedric Sabal- how well Cedric Sabalos played. Obviously, Cedric Sabalos's you know game tying three point shot. You know we're down five with with five seconds to go, and Sabalos had a reverse dunk, and we're able to get a five second violation uh, with Scotty Pippen trying to inbound the ball to Michael Jordan, and you know ran a play. Sabalos hit a three. May have just shuffled his feet a little bit, but it counted and. <laughs> You know, we survived a Tony Kukoc potential match-winning finger roll, and you know, it, uh, we went to overtime and, and we got rolling. Um, I was fortunate to play for the three and a half, four minutes of overtime, and had a jumper, had a dunk, had a little scuffle with Dennis Rodman, and it was a really—I mean, for me, it's one of the most memorable games. You know, one of the most in- memorable individual games. I mean, we didn't win a championship for it, we didn't get an award for it, but. Right. You know, it's a, it's a pretty special thing for a for a tennis player from a little you know suburb in Melbourne to to come and play against Michael Jordan and only have the the privilege of doing it once in his life and to walk away with a win. So yeah, not many people do that, and it was a very very special night. Yeah, no, it, it really was. I remember watching that and with my brother and my dad and when that Sabalos three went in I jumped in the air and it was just it was so much fun and um, it's funny I was actually doing some research on that game in particular on YouTube I came across a video of um, your coach Don Nelson kind of he was breaking down a lot of the fourth quarter a lot of overtime I'll say it, yeah yeah, yeah I had never seen that video before it was really informational helpful and yeah I did I did want to ask you about your little scuffle with Dennis Rodman that you mentioned do you remember what he said to you or what you said to him uh, no I don't I just remember laughing at him and getting up close to that head and uh, you know what there's, there's there's a couple of things about Dennis Rodman though that uh, that, that I do remember it's probably from earlier on in that game or, or sorry from early on before that game was that um Sean Bradley had had a, a family situation and, you know, there was a sick family member and 
you know, Rodman was the guy that came into the locker room beforehand to check up on him and see how he was doing and ask after his family. And it really surprised me because you, you, you hear about the, the, the crazy side of Dennis Rodman. So pretty much when he set foot on the court, the, the crazy came out. That's, you know, his persona. But, um, yeah, I don't think anything, you know, anything intelligent was said. I, I remember laughing at his, in his face. I remember pulling up short on, on, you know, swinging an elbow and protecting the ball. Became very concerned when I, I heard the referee blow a technical foul because I thought I'd just gotten one and it wasn't both. <laughs> um, so I certainly, did, certainly didn't want to give away the lead. But no, it was very little, very little substance to anything that was said. Right. No, thanks for going into so much detail about that game. You know, that was definitely a memorable, memorable game for me um, as a as a kid. So I'm, um, you know, that that's really cool that you, you know, finished your professional career going one and zero against Michael Jordan. So after your your rookie season ended, the lockout began. Did you have any like inclinations or thoughts about maybe returning home to Australia or playing somewhere else? Or, or did you stay in Dallas and try to see how the lockout resolved? Uh, no, look, I, I guess I did. And only because you know, I was probably one of the more vocal opponents of the lockout based on the fan, probably, you know, got a, a few people offside, but um from where I'd been coming from, I made $30,000 a year to play basketball and someone was offering me a million dollars to play and you know, the Players Association was telling me I was meant to think that wasn't enough where mm-hmm. I'd always considered it a privilege to even have the opportunity to play in the NBA. So certainly I was very much opposed to it and you know, as I mentioned, I'd only been playing the game for such a short period of time that I needed the opportunity to continue to improve so I had made other arrangements to go back and play for a coach that I respected back in Australia if the season wasn't salvaged um, I'm very glad it didn't come to that and I spent you know the entire lockout you know primarily training with Steve Nash who you know probably one of the the most vivid memories I have is some of that time when the season started because you, you may recall that it was a very unpopular trade to, at the time to get Steve in, which sounds ridiculous now, but it got to the stage where, you know, our home Mavericks fans were booing Steve as he advanced the ball down the floor and would jeer him if he, you know, did do something good and, yeah, made a shot, shot a runner. And, you know, I've just never seen a guy stay that upbeat, remain positive and keep working and just continue to build his craft away from you know, the, the team training sessions and, you know, the, the improvement he was able to, to get in his game through the hard work that he put in was just absolutely incredible. And, you know, I've spoken to so many young players about his work rate and what he was able to achieve. And, mm-hmm. you know, I feel very lucky to have, you know, spent some time understanding what made Steve tick and certainly have shared that with a lot of people. Yeah, no, he was definitely one of my, and well, I should say, I do remember, you know, his, his first season, his first two seasons here. Um, you know, I've, I've always been a big Steve Nash fan, but initially, you know, he did have struggles and, you know, at, at that time, I never would have guessed he'd even become a full-time starter, let alone an eventual all-star and then even more an eventual two-time MVP. So, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's really cool to see or that you were there and, you know, to watch him 
work his ass off. And to me, he's probably my second favorite Maverick of all time behind, behind Dirk, obviously, which leads me to my next question. You had the privilege of playing with him also as he, yeah. his, his rookie year. What were your initial impressions of him? You know, I've been watching him for 20 years now and I read things about just how he, how like quiet he was and, and timid and shy and, and homesick. So, I mean, what, his first year, what were your yeah, impressions he, of him as a rookie? Yeah, it, it was that. And Steve Dirk and I lived in the same apartment complex, uh, the, the Gables at Turtle Creek. And my, my, look, my initial, until I got to know him, my, my initial thoughts on Dirk were how effortless his shot was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sounds like a silly thing to say, but you know, if you remember, he had Holger come and doing all these, you know, we thought crazy type of footwork and off balance <laughs> shooting drills and footwork drills, and we didn't really understand. But you know, as we got to know him, he, he began to tell us a bit about what it was. It made a little bit more sense. But you know, in very much the same way that Steve absolutely. You know his his work rate and training rate was incredible. Dirk, the the amount of time Dirk put into his craft was incredible. You know he probably fair to say he didn't train at the same intensity as what Steve did, but certainly those two would be the you know in the gym for longer than anyone else. And I used to pride myself on how hard I worked, but you know those two were just a different level. And you know like you say, Dirk was homesick. He struggled in his rookie year. Don Nelson was. was quite critical behind closed doors and publicly of him and you know the effort he was putting forward but you know he always cared for him and there was always method to Nelly's madness and you know again you, you could just see glimpses with Dirk you, you, again you would you, you mentioned you would never have picked Steve to be a two-time MVP I, I don't think anyone would have ever envisaged Dirk being the sixth leading scorer in NBA history yeah, um, and and to have some and, and to have some of the moments he had leading the Dallas Mavericks to an NBA championship. I mean, it was his team, and you know he's had an extraordinary career. And I suppose there's still a little, you know, that I still enjoy sitting back and putting on NBA League Pass and watching those, you know, not Steve anymore, but watching Dirk play. And I, I think both of them had a hand at some level at, at revolutionising the game. You know, Dirk, with his ability to shoot the ball so well with his big and his, you know, his one-foot step-back fadeaway jump shots, and Steve, with his ability to, you know, to, to keep alive dribble and to shoot the ball at speed, I think were two things that were, just hadn't been seen in the NBA. And, you know, to see them introduce new skills uh, that have become commonplace these days was really special. Absolutely. Um, I agree with everything you just said. And I, I've been a Mavs fan, like I said, my entire life. And the fact that, you know, Dirk's time is winding down is, is kind of sad, sad for me. And, you know, I'm trying to go, I, I try to watch as many games as possible. And then I live in Dallas. And so uh, I try to go to as many games as I can. And I actually have a, a partial season ticket package with a friend and just trying to enjoy it while I can. So I, I definitely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so no, after special. your, yeah, he, he definitely is. He, he is a special player and it won't be the same once he leaves. I'll be a Mavs fan, but I, I don't think it'll, it won't be the same. Not for a little while anyways. Right. So after your second year in Dallas, you were traded to Chicago and that, that's actually another city that's very special to me. I lived there for four and a half years 
before right. I moved back to Dallas about three years ago. Uh, what were you, were you excited for a change of scenery or, or were you sad to leave Dallas when you, when you moved to Chicago? Uh, both. I, you know, had a, a rough summer league and, you know, Donnie Nelson and I clashed a few times and I think anybody would realize, and again, being so new to the sport, I, I didn't understand the politics almost of the summer league. And, you know, you, you're probably very aware that bigs get very few touches. I, I wanted to continue to improve and, and, and prove myself and prove that I belonged. And, you know, it wasn't going to plan and, you know, had a, a little bit of a, you know, couple of run-ins with Donnie Nelson because I'm reasonably honest and you know it, it didn't work out and they, they chose to trade me so yeah first you know I was disappointed I, I, I really felt like I'd taken some steps uh, felt like I, I belonged um, you know had some some pretty good games and had you know I, I finished my my rookie year quite strongly and had some decent games in, in my second year and felt that I had a lot of improvement left in me but at the same time, with that disappointment, I knew that I was going to a club that had that had wanted me on draft night, and right. it was still the same front office management. So that part was exciting. But I suppose you know, walking into the environment that was the Chicago Bulls, then it, it was really complex. There were you, know, you walk in and see the six championship trophies and the banners hanging around the practice facility, but 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 very few of the players who were a part of that. You know, it was an absolute, complete rebuild. I think from memory, we won 17 games. So it was a, a very long year. It was one that wasn't that enjoyable because I don't think anybody likes losing, you know, 65 games. And, you know, the, the decision at the end of the year for me, we, we had the Olympic Games in Sydney coming up. And obviously that's my home country. And it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to, to participate in them. And, the, the Bulls had wanted me to continue to stay for the summer and, and work on my physical conditioning, which I completely agreed that I, I needed to do. But they weren't, you know, they, they didn't give me a guarantee for the next year. And I, you know, it worried me that I, w I would stay the summer in, uh, in Chicago, not have a contract and then have missed out on the Sydney Olympic Games, which turned out to be an amazing life experience also. But, um, you know, what I would say, in retrospect, if you know, if I was a better player, they would have signed me earlier. So, I'm very comfortable that I was, a, I got out of myself everything that I could. Um, I was very raw and needed to learn a lot more about the game. And you know, it's hard to teach experience. It, it's funnily enough, that just takes time. Would have loved to have had longer in the NBA, but uh, you know, I nearly got back in there. You know, four or five years later, I'd, I'd, I'd had three years in Russia and came home to Australia and won the most valuable player award in our league and won the championship and had a fantastic, well, had a number of good workouts and a really good one with the Washington Wizards who were very keen, but ended up drafting a younger player in my position, which I suppose killed off that last shot I had of getting back into the NBA. So oh, wow. look, it was a roller coaster. It was a whirlwind. It was something I never expected to do, but you know, I'm forever grateful, you know, for the opportunity to have done it and, and to be one of the first Australians behind, you know, behind Luke Longley primarily. But, you know, Shane Hill spent a, a minute there and you mentioned Andrew Gaze. Uh, Mark Bradkey played had a couple of 10-day contracts with the Philadelphia 76ers. But outside of that, it was quite a rare thing for Australian basketball. And I'm you know, very proud to have been one of the first players 
you know, to, to break through that barrier to sign an NBA contract and, you know, very happy to see nine play, nine Australian players on NBA rosters this year. Oh, wow. I, I didn't know it was that high. And yeah, uh, you, you referenced, you know, some of your success after, after your career in the NBA and I knew you had had a successful, successful international career. I just, I didn't know the extent of it and I'm looking at it right now again and you had two NBL MVPs, a grand final MVP, three championships, a most improved player award. You won a sixth man award. I mean, that's, that's an incredible career. And, you know, coupling that with the fact that you got to go represent Australia in Sydney at the Olympics. I mean, I think it's safe to say things worked out for you very well. Yeah. And I got to go to Beijing as well and play in the Olympic games there. But yeah. And you know what? Some of it was, because I mentioned I spent three years in Russia and mm-hmm. they were three of the hardest years of my life, but also three of the most educational because I, you know, I walked away from there a much, much better player. Um, right. Certainly a tougher player and, you know, continued to improve. I think I was still getting better when I hit 30. And, you know, you look back and, you, you, again, you wish you had known when you were younger what you learned, what you, what you knew at 30. But no, look, it was... I'm very proud of what I was able to do. I, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a whirlwind, but, it, you know, I, I don't think basketball ever defined me. It was something I picked up late. It was something that, you know, probably, yeah, I know it was an interesting one. It was, uh, I didn't grow up with the sport, so, you know, it meant as much to me probably as any other sport, but I grew to love it more and more over time. And... Yeah, it's, uh, I realise how fortunate I am to have been, you know, to to have, to have earned not not to have been given an opportunity, but to have earned an opportunity that you know lots and lots of people aspire to do and and, and fall short. Right. So <clears throat> I know once your playing career ended, you did do some coaching for the Melbourne Tigers. Uh, do you think you'll return to coaching, or are you still involved in coaching in any capacity right now? Yeah, yeah, I'm on my way now. I, I coach a Victorian state team. I, I coach some high-level junior basketball here in Victoria. Um, wh- whether or not I'll return to professional coaching, I don't know. There's, you know, th- there's an enjoyment I find in teaching, you know, 15 to 18-year-old athletes. You know, m- my my learning experience was fast-tracked, and I I had some amazing coaches and. You know, I've been able to, to formulate what I think is a really good philosophy around the sport, both on the court and off it. And, you know, I, I think at that age, there's still an ability to influence change in behavior and habit. You know, once you become a professional, so for a lot of, you know, a lot of times, you, you, who you are is set in stone. But I, I still think there's great improvement, the great ability to mold some younger players into, you know, into realizing the potential that they, they may not even know they have while they're still that young. So I enjoy surrounding myself with, with athletes of that age. I think I'll always coach at that level, whether it's paid or volunteered. And um, yeah, whether or not it's professional, I, I just don't know. Right. Um, well, I think I just have a couple more questions and they're actually not necessarily basketball related. I'm trying to just sure. incorporate a couple things. I'm just wondering, What's on Chris Anstey's Netflix lineup these days? Are you watching any good television what, shows? Geez, what, what, what's on my Netflix? I've been watching Designated Survivor. Okay. Um, I've been I've been watching. What else have I been watching? God, 
funnily enough, I end up watching so many cartoons because I've got a <laughs> two and a half year old who, who watches all the different Paw Patrols and all that kind of thing. But uh, no, nah, look, not 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 as much time spent in front of the TV as you'd probably imagine. Right. And then the the only other thing is um, I have a, a high school buddy of mine named JP, and he's a big Chris Anstey fan. So I told him I'd try to get a right. shout out from you. <laughs> That's fantastic, JP. How are you, man? All right. Yeah. No. Thanks a lot. Hey, uh, no, you might. I'll tell you one other little anecdotal one that I that was an enjoyable part when I left Dallas. Was, oh, absolutely. You might also you might also remember Martin Mercer, who was a teammate of mine. I do. That's <laughs> uh, man. So I was. Uh, you know, I'd been three months in Russia and really hated it. You know, it was hard because nobody spoke English, and I certainly didn't speak Russian, and the team, by absolute chance, ended up recruiting uh, Martin as a uh, from another club because the other club hadn't paid him. So, you know, he was a big part of me staying in Russia, and we played together over there for, for 18 months. And he helped teach me the language and helped integrate me into the Russian culture. So, he he became one of my you know one of my very good friends. And later on in his career and later on in mine, he actually came down and played on my team in Australia as well until he got injured. So we, no, we, we, we ended up spending another three years playing together and became close friends and always spoke about the Mavericks and spoke about guys like, you know, like Chad Lewis, um, who was a strength and conditioning guy at the Mavericks for a lot of years. And, you know, even, you know, Mark Stein used to write there and, and Dwayne uh, used to write. So, we, you know, it was great to always have a reason to talk about the Mavericks and, and great to continually reconnect with uh you know, become good friends with some guys who are over there. Right. Do you think you'll try to come come to Dallas one more time before Dirk retires to watch him play? You know what? I would love to. I I, I gene him up. I you know he obviously gets millions of messages. But I I keep asking him where my invite to his annual tennis tournament is. He, you know, it's it's the one thing I could do better than him is play tennis. And <laughs> uh, I'm still wait, I'm still waiting on my invitation for the annual tennis tournament. Uh, but, but, to answer, but to answer your question, I'd love to come and see him play in person one more time if there's any chance of that happening before the end of this season because I'm assuming that this one may be his last. Yeah, I, that's kind of my gut feeling too. I, I hope that it's not, but I I went to the game the other night and granted it's only one game, but he just, I don't know, There's some. it's just a gut feeling. I think this might be it. Uh, I, I I have the same gut feeling based on no fact whatsoever, but yeah, I think you might be right. And if there's any chance of getting over there, I certainly will. Well, thanks so much, Chris. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, like I said, I'm enjoying this process and you've been very responsive and just very helpful with everything. And, you know, even though we had a little postponement tonight, I, I really appreciate you giving me a call. So we were able to set this up and then You're more good, than luck, welcome. good luck with your season. And yeah. um, well, no, I, I enjoyed the chat. All right, great. Thanks, Chris. Have a, have a good weekend. Have a good night. Okay. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye.